Oh, Canada. Man, I love that country. I, I love that country because I have personally experienced their outstanding school and healthcare systems. Yes, but also because I've seen the Northern Lights and an actual moose. No, you do not see those in downtown Toronto. You got to go north of Eglinton. <laughs> that was that, that's for the Torontonians in the audience. And if you're listening, I hope you're enjoying this moment. In all the years that I lived in Canada, I have never known how many of the movies we all know and love were actually made there. There will be a quiz at the end of this show, so uh, stick around for that. This is episode four, part two of Burning Sofa. I'm Betsy D, and we are back to continue our conversation with Academy Award-winning set decorator Jeff Melvin. And last week, Jeff gave us an up-close and personal look at the visual impact of The Shape of Water. And if you missed that episode, I say check it out because, man, it's like a guided tour through Guillermo del Toro's head. <laughs> it's true. And today, we are going to actually explore some of the blockbuster tentpole productions that Mr. Melvin has under his belt. And I think we'll start with The Incredible Hulk. Well, yes, we will, because it's there on tape. I see it. The uh, This is the 2008 Louis Leterrier version of that beloved story. And this one stars Edward Norton, Tim Roth, William Hurt, who plays an awesome villainous, vengeful dude in a uniform, I must say, and Liv Tyler. So let's get back to our gab fest. Speaking of tentpoles and O Canada, uh, that is also where you worked on the film The Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. This is uh, the legendary story from the comic books that I used to sneak from my older brother's bedrooms um, in like 1970. And this story is um, that crazy doctor, he gets infected and then he spends an entire movie searching for a cure for the monster he becomes when he's angry. It's, it's a good anger management film, I think. And boy, oh boy, wouldn't we all love to find that antidote. So anyway, why don't you tell us about uh, what it took to build the, uh, the reality that had to be filmed to project us into a really unreal world. That was the classic tentpole production, I guess, but that really was a big game changer. That was their first attempt at self-producing as Marvel Studios. So that was a really big deal for that movie to, to be made in Toronto. And it was the first time the team I worked with got to, uh, or at least I got to work on something with that kind of budget level. Well, apparently they chose very well because the, the, the actual movie opens with the uh, scene in a bottling factory that's in full swing. And that had to be an interesting project. <laughs> yes. The opening takes place in uh, Brazil. I think it was a Brazilian bottling factory. You know, it was funny because really early in the movie, they surveyed a hockey pop company or a Viceroy is an old classic Canadian company. It was a beautiful old uh, early 20s sort of factory. And with this, they made erasers, pencil erasers, and the hockey pucks. Covered all the bases. <laughs> and uh, it was a beautiful looking old building. And they had surveyed that. And then they had gone to an old bottling um, plant. And somehow they were going to pretend we were going to bottle in Brazil. It was going to be in Brazil. And that's where he worked and where we'd find the character first. And subsequently, there was a lot of action sequences that ensued at the plant. And it became early early in the movie, it became obvious to them that they couldn't do what they wanted to do in a real bottling plant because they wanted to pick up like 
tanks of uh, big, huge tanks of liquid and throw them across the room. And some of it on rig, some of it physical, some of it supplemented with CG. But they wanted a bigger space than the real bottling plant. And they wanted the ability to um, take very large industrial items and pick them up and throw them and destroy them. So they decided that they would try to build a bottling plant, which I remember early, I thought that's, they'll never do that. That's just dumbest thing I've ever heard. We're not going to build a bottling plant. You were working with Kirk Petricelli. Yeah. So what kind of conversations did you have with him about that? We early went out to Hamilton to this big, huge abandoned factory that had all the physical elements of the building. It was all decrepit and it could have been anywhere and it was huge space and they had a, a mezzanine and they had all kinds of the ability to do whatever they wanted. And, and also that space had an incredible basement to build this very elaborate um, army facility that we needed. And it was really well suited to do both of them in this big factory. So the job that I got handed was you have to find some machinery to build a bottling plant. But it was like, this is big, big space. Uh, and it all worked out really well. It was some very good fortune. We did some research and there's, you know, closed bottling plants. And I guess we figured out that we'd have to go buy stuff from a closed bottling plant, dismantle it, chip it up and reassemble it. Then we have to and make it. And it, it had to work. Well, I had to go around in a circle and yeah, it had to look like it worked. Yeah. So it was very challenging. And initially, I'd never done anything of that scale. Even a small bottling plant is a big project in set decoration to get conveyors and motors and make them all go around. And this one wasn't small. It was quite large. This was an example of working with outside expertise to do um, period machinery. Often we'll have to go outside of our, you know, get an expert in the field. We had to uh, learn a lot about bottling so that we could figure out how to, what the equipment really did. Uh, what we could realistically do and what we couldn't realistically do. I had to specifically hire some, um, build a power panel. The power for conveyors and motors is completely different than anything I've done. It's all 600 volt and we needed a commercial electrician for that and had to build a power supply for it. And that was, I remember at the time it was going, this is an extra 10 or $20,000. I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? But Ten to twenty thousand dollars in the big picture wasn't very much, and it worked. There was some nail biting there. <laughs> I still love the sound of bottles going around, tinkling at each other. It's one of my favorite sounds in the world. I love that sound. I I, I believe it's called ASMR. I think only Gen Xers would get that. So building something from nothingness, you know, that's um, that's a tough job. And so talk to me about sourcing materials. Right now we have the internet, sure. But what did you do before that? Well, fortunately, I was in props back then, <laughs> before the internet. <laughs> I'm not going into set decoration until there's an internet. Props used to be like, you know, there'd be coffee cup, knife, gun, book, purse, watch. <laughs> I don't mean to minimize it, but it seemed I was less demanding. Uh, in terms of the breadth of stuff I had to get. And then early when I went into decoration, I actually didn't have a clue about buying or sourcing anything. I didn't realize how involved it was. I didn't know how much was involved with textiles and wallpaper. And I remember I used to go onto sets and I'd always go, wow, this looks great. I wonder, they didn't have to do anything. This looks fabulous. And then I realized they did a whole lot. You just couldn't tell because it was done properly. Or I didn't know what it looked like ahead of time. That age old thing of, you know, anything done brilliantly. 
Yeah, yeah. It looks easy. Exactly. So the the sourcing uh, is a is a big thing, and it really that divides the wheat from the chaff for sure in terms of buyers, assistants, decorators, people that you know you want to you want to get into it. You want to be able to find cool stuff. You want to be realistic in terms of what you can spend. When every time you got to build an aircraft, you got to figure out a way to build the aircraft because you can't buy real aircraft parts. I remember I once needed a tail light for a helicopter. And I, oh, I found the real taillight and we can find it. And the taillight was like $18,000. And we wonder why airfare is so high. <laughs> and so it was like, we're never going to use a real taillight from a helicopter. So you didn't buy it? We did not buy the $18,000 taillight. So sourcing is great. And it's like, it's the bit of the holy grail. Shape of Water was, uh, I found some really great, great stuff that's all tucked away in that lab, which doesn't really show up individually. But together, all these little bits in the background, all this little small stuff all adds up to something sumptuous. So even if the detail wasn't revealed in the film, I know that the sum of the, all of the parts made made the whole. That goes with any set, all the furniture and carpets. It should be thought through, well-sourced, unique. That's why they, a bit of the mid-century modern now, like people go, oh, I love Mad Men. It looks so cool. It's a bit of the easiest thing because it's very popular now and everybody likes it. I was going to do a movie that, that was in that in the 1968 and thought, oh, I know the era really well and that's really good. But then when it, caught, it came to some like rich congressman's house in 1968, that would have been challenging. The, the textiles and furnishings and you'd want to get it right because they weren't, they were very traditional but they had a bit of sense of his wife was a modern person, this particular character. So you'd want to divide, you know, find the line where the house wasn't going to be like a 1968 mod pad, but it also wasn't going to be his grandmother's house. So, and there's lots of interesting stuff going on. So you, that kind of sourcing, you're offering ideas to the director and to the designer and to yourself that you feel is all going to work and come up with something that's, interesting and not you know a copy of dick van dyke or something well we don't want to trip over the ottoman so burners how about you just stay safe and stay on that sofa because we will be right back you know ever since the gymnast nadia komenich earned herself the very first 10 rating in the 1976 olympics which by the way happened in montreal Canada. Ding, ding, ding. Theme of the show. <laughs> Ever since then, we've all kind of craved a great rating. And uh, we here at Burning Sofa are not afraid to just damn well ask for one. So here's here's what we're saying. Uh, wherever you are listening right now, how about you approach your device boldly and throw some stars at us? That would be awesome. If you're one of those people who prefer to verbalize your feelings and... and you, <laughs> You haven't found a support group yet or something. <laughs> yeah, please, we can help. Um, just hit review and let her rip. We'll listen to anything you have to say. <laughs> and as for uh, support, speaking of support, for as little as three U.S. dollars per month, did you know that you too can support your burning sofa habit at patreon.com slash burning sofa? Yes. In the meantime... We've got way more revelations for you with our guest today, Jeff Melvin. Let's just move to another movie that you worked on, uh, Total Recall. This is the uh, futuristic movie where uh, this working dude gets told, whatever you do, do not go to that memory implantation thing. But of course, he you know goes and he gets injected or so we think. And then 
all hell breaks loose and he doesn't know if he's a spy or not. And so he's on the run. Uh, it is a dark dystopian movie and it is jam packed with visual stimuli. That movie was a lot like the Hulk in, in terms of there was just tons and tons of volume and every, and there was a lot of stunt work. So everything you did, you had was subject to being destroyed or burned up or wrecked. So you had to definitely pay attention that you might need doubles or triple kits of things. So that had a great designer and a good decorator and we uh, had the luxury of a good budget. And I think we managed that show very well. It was very, at the time, it was the biggest film. I think a budget of about 200 million. It was, a, it was a very high budget movie. And we had a lot of sets to accomplish. And we had the staffing and knowledge to do it. It was fun. Uh, yeah. We got to build a big indoor Chinatown, or uh, what was it, a Chinese market. It was really layered up and thick, lots of wiring and lots of, tons of neon and tons of product in every store and there was lots of unique little bits in it it was a lot of fun to work on oh and that feeling of being overwhelmed by sights and sounds and stuff definitely felt it when it comes to building futuristic sets the movie going audience is still here in the year 2020. We still have our 2020 brains. Is it a factor when you are building these sets that it has to somehow cue the brain that, ah, this is, this is what, you know, this is what a, a dresser drawer will look like in the year 2075? Or do you even have to worry about that? I mean, you've, you've got a blank slate in the future. You can do whatever you want. So between the designer and the decorator, you have the choice to do something different that you like that satisfies the script and makes sense. I know the apartment we did on Total Recall, Cal did that. And she found a really like, not particularly unusual little locker thing, but the way we used them for the kitchen cabinets, this little, this weirdly designed concrete bunker, which was loosely based on Habitat, which was a sixties design for Expo in Montreal, right. was the stacking house and these cubular concrete modules. And then Cal used some ordinary items in an extraordinary way. So out of context, they were something different. They worked really well. And again, so that was using ordinary common, you know, store-bought uh, items in a unique way and then good design and some customization and away you go. You can combine all those elements to create the future or you can do everything in white and electronics like every spaceship made. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the people you worked with on Total Recall. Can you give our audience a sense of the importance of and the, um, the good and bad elements of teamwork? You know, we worked in a town that used to um, crew by seniority. So when I started in decoration, our first four dressers were mandatory by seniority people who we all know each other because once you're seasoned and in the same union, you would know them. And if you were working on a good feature, you could guarantee that these people would come, be they good or bad, but you didn't really have a choice. And then seniority was eliminated. So you got to select your own crews, which really changed things a lot. So generally, you like to build a crew of people that you get along with. Our core group that does the film, which is a decorator, an assistant decorator, a lead man or two or three, and a group of buyers and a coordinator, that's the maybe the above the line decoration team. That's super essential. So those are people that you're both professional allies with and you're also friends with, you hope. 
and you want to have a very um, you know dedicated working environment but open there's no ticking off attendance uh, there's no protocols of like yes sir yes ma'am stuff it's casual everyone's equally aware of the demand level it's going to be a push to get out every movie is usually a push to get the sets purchased prepared bought and delivered in and dressed on time and then wrapped out on schedule that's always a challenge and every day there's a new set or every couple days or two a day and so there's a lot of scheduling so you all have to work together as a team so you try to build a team that likes each other so in theory everyone should want to work with everyone so we should have very little conflict well it sounds like a, a working army or, or a you know a functioning family which is something we all wish we had at thanksgiving every year but um it, but you know it's basically it takes a village yeah Speaking of villages, let's go to our next movie because this one takes place in that swinging seaside resort, Pompeii. This is a gladiator film and uh, it takes place just as Mount Vesuvius is erupting, which is of course the only era we know anything about when it comes to Pompeii. It looks like it was a lot of outdoor work and I'm thinking it was location work. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Pompeii is a, you know, a, a classic case of the not necessarily a terrific movie, but a really good job. I really enjoyed the project. Um, it was a beautiful summer and we got to work outside. We did roaming encampments and had custom fabricated some tents. And there's a woman I worked with on that who had uh, had them sewn up in India and shipped on over and then we assembled them. And, that, and then we had weather to deal with. So it was challenging to keep them up. And one of my lead guys, a really good rigger, and we had to build and do a pipe infrastructure inside of them so they wouldn't blow down. And uh, that part was fun. Yeah, sounds like summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of those good jobs, you know. you got to take them when you, when you get them. And we were in a, a quarry as well uh, for part of it. This, the basin of the quarry uh, worked well with the notion of the house we had built on a cliff overlooking Pompeii, which eventually fell into the ocean as our young lovers uh, waited for the um, fire ash storm to melt them in the end. Well, isn't that classic? You meet the guy of your dreams and, you know, the whole world blows up. <laughs> oh, so, um, but let's talk about, you, you a lot of outdoor work in Pompeii, but you also... Um, you probably had some challenges creating interiors for the year 79 CE. Uh, talk to us about that. We had a guy buy a lot of stuff in France that Paul knew from a movie he did in Belgium or something. Anyway, Philippe was a, is a decorator and he did the buying in Europe and uh, went to a couple of the big prop houses in Italy that also rented all this stuff from the prop house in Italy. So we filled up a container and brought it all over. So that's interesting too, especially that was talking about the computer era. So that's when you're terrified it's not going to arrive. Now we could look at the boat. Was, we, every morning we check where the boat is. Where's the boat with our container? <laughs> Again, it was a, that was another interesting, I didn't know very much about fabrics or draperies that they used then. I learned a bit about hand blocking and then we just sort of figured out how to do it. And I said, we're just going to do it. We're just going to paint it the same way they did it and made a stencil and the drapes worked out really great. Wow. It's amazing. You just, these are things that the movie going audience, we see them, we just don't appreciate what goes into them. So that's amazing. Uh, 
So let's move on. You are currently, uh, I think you just wrapped on Jupiter's Legacy, and that is another superhero movie, yeah? Well, it was my first television series in a really, really long time. Feature films are self-contained. They come and they go, and they're one project, and you can really focus on it. Generally, you can spend more time on each individual set on a feature than you can on a series. And uh, they pay the crew better. Generally, you want to work on features. And I always got to work on the best features in Toronto, but Netflix went and rented every stage of the city. So all of a sudden, there's only one movie shooting here now. And there's a struggle for studio space because Netflix has snapped up so many stages. Oh, wow. So what does that mean for you and your team? One or two features that I had had fallen through and time was marching on. So I bit the bullet and did a series for the first time in a long time. And it was actually quite a good experience. I know that after the first eight episodes, two episodes made up a block. So there were four blocks. Midway through the first block, myself and all the people I work with were saying, we're never doing another series again. I can't wait till this is over. I wish we were only doing one block. But by the end, it was like it got to be a bit of a routine and it was okay. So now that you've experienced both, which one do you prefer? I would still choose to do a feature, absolutely, and hope that I'll be returning to that next when the uh, virus is over. Mm -hmm. However, um, Netflix was a good employer here in Toronto and we had all the resources and manpower we needed. You know, the movie business, generally the exterior work can be very challenging and difficult. So if you get a, get lucky and get a good spring or summer or fall, it's the best because the opposite is string Christmas lights in February on a zoom boom and 80 kilometer an hour winds. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. Uh, now we're going to cut over to a part of the program that we like to call burning questions. This is where you give us one second off the top of your head answers to, well, some very important questions. Here we go. You ready? Here we go. What production designer do you want to work with? Well, in an ideal world, something as classic as Dante Ferretti, but uh, more likely would be somebody like Nathan Crawley or Dennis Gassner or something like that. Next question. What director would you like to work with? Guillermo again, Steven Spielberg, Aaron Sorkin, J.J. Abrams, the McQueen uh, and uh, Barry Jenkins, something like that. Any, you know, like all those quality guys would be an awesome experience. I, mean, I think everybody would agree with you. Here we go. Least favorite genre to work on. Oh, teen movie or Christmas. Your personal favorite movies. Doctor Strangelove, Jaws, The Godfather, Deer Hunter or Apocalypse Now. Lots of sci-fi. I'm like a big Trekkie. Comedies like Groundhog Day. Regrets about movies you did not make. Well, I was, I've was i always been like a sci-fi nerd, so I was very disappointed to never get a Star Trek movie and or even the series I sort of was excited for, but that came and went. So a project or a type of, of thing you'd like to work on? Um, well, anything tacky. I mean, I, that's really my big industrial or, and I actually never built a spaceship proper. Submarines, spaceships, control rooms, laboratories, you know, submarine and or um, spaceship movie. And, uh, and if you could change or improve anything about your role in set decoration, it would be? Well, more prep time and, you know, more uh, uh, more in and out schedule to, to, you know, dress the sets. I think the schedules need to expand, uh, you know, relaxed so that um, we'd have a little more time. And the craft there. table should be improved. <laughs> no craft table. That's out. <laughs> I, I gave it a long time ago. <laughs> 
Well, man, thank you so much. You have just been such a pleasure to gab with, and uh, we want you to come back. So we hope you would like to come back. Oh, thanks. Sure. Anytime. Well, that's it for us this week, Burners. Uh, but there's plenty of sofa to go. So stick around with us. Next week, the hot seat will be occupied by none other than the set deck writer, Andrew Baseman. Winner of the 2019 Art Directors Guild Award for Crazy Rich Asians. And if you loved that film, you are going to totally dig this interview. In the meantime, we are here for you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Burning Sofa Pod. We will see you wherever we see you and hope to see you soon. This is Betsy D saying so long. <laughs>